Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 292 of the podcast. It is November 9th, 2017. Today, our topic is something I've really taken an interest in the past two years. It's a topic, a methodology called motivational interviewing. I think it's a powerful methodology that will help anybody in their lean transformation efforts, as well as our work engaging anybody in a small improvement. Motivational interviewing, or MI, is defined by Miller and Rolnick in their seminal textbook as a collaborative conversation for strengthening a person's own motivation and commitment to change. So my guests today are three co-authors of an excellent book also on this topic. It's called Motivational Interviewing for Leadership, MI Lead. They are Jason Wilcox, a Director of Education and Connected Care at VA Roseburg, Dr. Brian Kirsch, clinical psychologist at the New England VA Health System, and Dr. Elizabeth Jenkins, a clinical psychologist and courtesy assistant professor at University of South Florida. So Brian and Beth are licensed clinical psychologists, and Jason is a licensed clinical social worker. You can learn more about them, their book, and the training and coaching they offer by visiting their MI for Leaders website at miforleaders.com. If you're looking for just one book on uh, this subject, I do recommend reading M.I. Lead, the book we're talking about today. The original textbook by Miller and Rolnick is surprisingly readable, I thought, but the book we're discussing today gives a great introduction to the methodology, but then quickly turns to workplace change issues instead of clinical therapy situations. I hope you enjoy the discussion and find it as thought-provoking and helpful as I did as I learned about this method. If you'd like to find a link to their book, their website, their bio, and more, you can go to leanblog.org slash 292. Well, again, I'm very pleased to be joined today by uh, Jason Wilcox, Brian Kirsch, and Beth Jenkins. I want to thank all of you for being here. And to jump right in, uh, Brian, if you can start off by giving you know, a bit of an overview about you know, what is meant by the phrase in the method motivational interviewing, um, how, how do you see that helping people? Uh, thank you, Mark. Um, so sure, uh, just to jump in. So motivational interviewing is a way of communicating with other people to help them resolve their ambivalence around change by really uh, eliciting and strengthening their own motivation for change. So that would be sort of a, a kind of a nice overview of what's meant by motivational interviewing. And did you have a second part to that question? Well, so what, what's the intent, or maybe a better way of asking is some of the origins of this method as a, a way of helping people? Sure. Well, it started in really treating addictions, and, and in particular alcohol um, use disorders. And it was very different than the traditional approach of sort of, you know, badgering people into change or, um, you know, kind of forcing them to change by confronting them and, and telling them why they needed to change and how to go about doing it. So it's a, it's a real shift in that you're, rather than forcing or try to coerce uh, somebody to change, you're really making change come from them, which is really where it comes from in the first place, right? So 
motivational interviewing is about how do we help people change by having them identify their own how and, and why uh, around change. And so it started in addictions, um, and it quickly demonstrated itself to be very effective in that area, and then moved into other areas of changing behavior, like uh, the healthcare setting, uh, and then even in the legal setting. And now we're seeing it used in, in other settings as well. As um, an engineer, not a psychologist speaking here, you know, reading um, about motivational interviewing, um, you know, it's interesting to think that, you know, that, that, that attempts to badger people would be effective in a clinical setting. I, I can see why badgering people into change um, isn't effective in a workplace. You know, what, what led to, you know, a recognition that there was, uh, you know, some potential for, um, you know, potential benefit of, of trying a different approach? What were some of the origins of that? Well, in the, in the workplace, this is Beth, in the workplace, you know, we've all seen, whether it's, whether it's individual change or organ, organizational change, we've all seen that there are opportunities for change to happen. There, there are times that change needs to happen. And as, as we were, all three of us, doing a, a fair amount of, of training with folks using motivational interviewing, um, when looking at individual change, we began to see that it had great applications in, in organizations itself and, and for leaders who, who are struggling to engage the, the folks they're working with and, and be successful without sacrificing their own agendas. Yeah, and, and and maybe that we, we can come back and touch on this point later. The difference between a clinical therapy setting where the focus is on, um, you know, hopefully, on uh, the patient's needs in a workplace that that perhaps gets a little bit more complicated when there are organizational needs that a manager or leader um, is feels obligated to uh, to push as opposed to just uh, evoking. Or, or do you have a quick thought on? on that path. Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 it can be a real dance because you've got multiple agendas at play and they're not always obviously the same. Um, and it can, it can take some real collaboration to find a, a shared agenda. Yeah, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll come back and, and, and touch on that topic of how to find that shared agenda. But um, to, in, in terms of context, I mean, how, how just in terms of history, when did motivational interviewing um, evolve or, or become uh, used in the the original addiction setting? Is it decades or what's the time frame? Yeah, I believe it became um, more well known as it was introduced at a conference. If if I have this correct, I believe it was around 1983. Bill Miller was at a conference. Prior to that conference, he um, had been on a sabbatical. And some of the folks that he was working with while on sabbatical were curious about his approach to working with addictions because he was very he was very effective, but his approach wasn't just like everyone else's. And so they, they began to meet and have some brown bag luncheons where they could pick his brain and and uh, get a better understanding of why he was doing what he was doing and, and what was behind the choice points along the way. And as he heard himself speak, he will... He will often tell folks he came to to this model of motivational interviewing, and it has it has grown exponentially 
since that time. But he inter- first introduced the, the theory at a conference in 1983. And I'm kind of fascinated by the idea that um, I wonder if within the uh, addiction therapy world, there was resistance to this new approach. I'm wondering how the creators of motivational interviewing um, uh, figure out how to lead people to even investigate this. I think a lot of the listeners of this podcast struggle with, you know, the idea that, you know, they, they feel like they have a methodology, you know, namely lean, that they think is better and they're frustrated that people might not embrace that. I wonder, I imagine there must have been a similar um, evolution within the clinical therapy realm, if, if any of you would be interested in commenting on that. So uh, I'll jump in. This is Brian. Um, you know, I think the main resistance at first is any time you have a new therapy, um, a- including one that's, you know, pretty significantly different from what's in vogue at the time, you're going to have resistance just as there's resistance to any change, right, which is quite germane to our uh, conversation. Uh, and so, you know, this was radically different from a lot of what was being done at the time, which tended, especially in the addictions world, to be much more confrontational. Uh, it's also very different from the um, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, the AA approach, uh, although you may see some parallels within there. It's, it, it doesn't focus on the need for a higher power. You don't have to... Uh, confess that you have a problem, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I think the main resistance at the time was the fact that, you know, it was very different than, than other sort of therapeutic approaches for treating addictions. Um, where it came to be accepted over time is, one, many counselors finding it maybe more consistent with their sort of natural therapeutic style, um, which a lot of us were, were, as therapists, were trained to be um, human-centered or client-centered or patient-centered, and motivational interviewing fits with that nicely. And of course, over time, the more it was studied, um, the more it demonstrated a strong evidence base uh, around its use, which made it be more adopted as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, one thing that always, you know, stands out to me when I'm reading about motivational interviewing is the idea that something new can be rationally better, and and, and people may even say, yeah, I know it would be better to do such and such, but maybe, you know, if one of you can elaborate on this idea of ambivalence, um, you know, in a workplace setting where, where leaders or individuals might say, yeah, I, you know, they might express a desire or a need to do something, why, you know, why does that often get people stuck in in a state of ambivalence instead of moving forward? So, Mark, this is Jason. Um, you're talking about the ambivalence that comes naturally with an employee in a workplace as change comes about and different things happen, correct? Yeah, and, if, you know, if you can elaborate on that, on, on how that state of ambivalence isn't, yeah, it is natural. It's not meant to be a negative label any more than, you know, like, you know, how you point out in the book that resistance shouldn't be used as a way of labeling something as, you know, uh, pathological. It's it's quite quite natural, right? Right. And so ambivalence is the same as you're stating. Ambivalence is a normal state for anybody to be in. And it's often just the reality that we see two sides to things. 
uh, employees. As change comes about, we love the way that things have been. Uh, we appreciate uh, what we've been able to demonstrate, the way that we've uh, been able to show success, and also this new change comes in, so it, it like shocks the system. And then we can see how possibly the benefits are going forward. And so we, we get this mixed bag of the pros and cons of staying the same and, and staying in the same processes that we're comfortable in or possibly changing into these new processes. Um, and the benefits of that are possibly consequences of that. And so it just becomes this natural, um, I guess, state for employees to feel once uh, change change comes about in an organization and they and leaders start talking about that change they start feeling that ambivalence i i might add to that too what jason was saying which is that it's it's kind of it's kind of a normal part of any type of change we have each of us an awareness when we're ambivalent of the reasons for and the reasons not for and and um, it's really about sorting, sorting through that. So it's when we when we come at it from the approach of motivational interviewing, we really look at ambivalence as, as a really normal, expectable, expected part of uh, part of the process. Yeah, and I think you know one, one reflection I have um, you know, after being uh, you know as an early student of motivational interviewing, still early in my learning about this. Um, you know, I start becoming more aware in my own mind or, or sometimes seeing in the writing of others when uh, I, I think it's a common topic in the lean world where um, somebody has an approach that that's clearly rationally uh, better and resistance comes up. And it seems like a lot of people um, are quick then to label those resistors as bad and we need to start moving people out of the organization and you know, can you can you talk more about you know this idea of having a conversation about change, a discussion? You know, how how is that resistance something to? You know, how how do you resolve? What are some of the tactics for resolving that ambivalence instead of just saying, "Oh, they're resistant, they're bad. We need to force them to change." Yeah, I I think that's a a, a great question. And first of all, it's important to recognize that as leaders, we have a definite role and an impact with regard to where um, the people we're leading are in the change process. And, and what I mean by that is um, we think that just simply writing somebody off, writing an employee off, uh, labeling that employee as resistant or not a team player uh, is inaccurate. And, and instead we recognize that as leaders, we have a role in how motivated um, that individual is towards changing. So recognizing what you just heard, that ambivalence is a normal part of the change process, that's in our personal lives, um, that's at work as well, right? And so when an employee is normally and naturally not 100% on board with change, um, it, it behooves us as leaders to work with them and before we have them jump into that change process, um, have them identify really why they might want to change. What do they see the benefits of change being? How might they go about implementing the change? What, how does this change fit into the employee's values and goals? Um, and we recognize that once the employee starts to identify 
their reasons for change, their, again, their how and their why to change, they're much more likely um, to jump on to the um, change being discussed. And then and only then do we go forward with sort of implementing the change plan. Yeah. And, and you know, what you talk about there, um, asking the individual to articulate why change is important. I mean, I, th I think that's pretty revolutionary because, you know, I think within the lean framework, uh, you know, people are on board with asking employees for input about the what and the how. But I think there's still and, and I've been I've been guilty of, of this myself, of, of trying to explain the why you know, and telling the why. And, it, and, 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 you know, it seemed like that that's an important lesson, motivational interviewing that uh, we, we should draw that out. Do, do you find in workplaces that the employee motivation for change is hopefully well aligned with the organization? Is that part of the role of leaders to, to create that sort of alignment? Oh, I was just going back to how you said, you know, sometimes it's, it, you know, just comes out naturally that we want to explain the why and, and we want to, yeah. you know, just give them the, the information. Um, but if we look at that, right, when we explain the why, our why may not be a motivator for somebody else. We need, we need their why, right? And so um, you're identifying that important issue of allowing them to, to identify what is going to drive them to go forward. Um, like in the healthcare setting, I think of a lot of different examples, but, you know, I had a leader one time when I was training him, we were talking about some of these concepts. He said, you know, I, I don't want to be going down this road. I want to be able to just tell people, this is what you need to do and then go and do it. And mm -hmm. uh, so we kind of talked about that and flushed that out of, okay, well, what, what normally happens when you do that? What kind of responses do you get? And he was able to start identifying some of the more some of the pushback you might get. Um, and when we look at it, like in a healthcare setting, possibly what we're just about to change truly might be beneficial or even more beneficial for a patient. Um, but if we tell the why and we just tell people what to do, that motivation might be missing or that ambivalence we didn't process through well and, and help identify some of their desire to go forward. And so when we take the time to see what's going on with them and pull out those, those motivations within them and guide that and help that grow, that's when you see people really flourish, grab onto change, and make it their own. And, and Beth, what, what did you? Oh, I was just thinking about a quote, and it's, it's interesting because the quote is, was um, made back in the 1600s, but... Um, uh, Pascal, he, he said that people are generally better persuaded by the reasons which they have themselves discovered mm -hmm. than by those which have come into the mind of others. And despite the fact that this came out in the 1600s and motivational interviewing really didn't begin to take shape until, until the 1980s, it's the heart and soul of motivational interviewing, which is that if the reasons do not come from the changer's mouth, if they do not come from within the person who's considering change, that even if, if, they, if somebody attempts change for a short period of time for somebody else's reasons, they don't generally stick. And we've had decades and decades now of research looking at motivational interviewing across multiple um, populations where we've seen that. 
and and that's that's there's good and bad in that. The the good news is that at any given time we can see how is it how is this conversation that we are having with an individual or or this interaction with an organization how is it going based on what we're getting back. If we're getting back what we call change talk, which is any statements about somebody's desire or ability, reasons, need for change. Um, if we're getting those kind of statements from the individual who's considering change, we're on the right track. That's actually predictive of change. On the other hand, if we are trying to kind of shove down somebody's throat all of the reasons that we can think of that support change, the, the reasons that make sense to us, those those things coming out of our mouths are, are not predictive of change and actually can can have the opposite effect by by pulling um, what we call sustained talk from the potential changer. In other words, all those arguments for why they can't, the yes buts that we often hear when we're, when we're trying to encourage somebody. I mean, it seems like there, there's this sort of a, a fractal uh, problem here where there's, you know, the uh, challenge of if, if, if you and, you know, you're authors of a book and, you know, I guess in a book, a way, you know, in a way, a book is a, a telling <laughs> approach. And I say this as an author, too. There's no other way about it. A book is sort of, you know, telling people, uh, you know, here is a methodology. Uh, it's better. It gets better results. Um, it fits better with, um, you know, the way, the, way, the way people are. How do you apply, you know, maybe you're talking with leaders about this. How do you apply some of the, the MI concepts so that you don't fall back on, you know, telling them you need to embrace this and, and telling them why. I mean, you, you need sort of evoke the reasons for change about this new approach to change, right? <laughs> yes. It's like volunt voluntold. The people who come to some of our workshops were voluntold that they had to come, which is completely the opposite of, of what we're going to discuss with them. Yes. And I would say it's an invitation, right? Yeah. We we invite them to learn the material. And, you know, sometimes we have those, like I brought up with that leader before, who really this was against what he felt was the right way to be a leader. And the best we can do is invite them to give it a try. And we use some mm -hmm. of the same skills that we talk about here. We use some open-ended questions to see where their thoughts are. We reflect some of their um, thinking and feelings upon the topic and uh, help guide and open a door for them to possibly try out some of these skills. We definitely don't try to, we, we do our best not to um, go in there and just force them or tell them this is how it has to be or this is the best way or, you know, you have to change into doing this kind of leadership. Yeah, and, and it's just, you know, it seems like that reminds me back to leaders who say, well, I just want to tell people what to do. Um, imagine if we think back, why, why are people, um, you know, uh, why, why do people stay in that status quo? Leaders would say, um, you know, maybe, well, it's we don't have time to engage everybody in a discussion. I know what the answer is, and we're under a lot of pressure. And, you know, it is, is I mean, have you seen it maybe in workplace settings where, you know, that, that directive telling approach, you know, it's either creates uh, false starts or yeah, I think there's a Toyotaism where people talk about going slow to go fast. It seems like MI might fall into that. You make that investment into the conversation, and and that's it, it's a good investment because it actually helps affect change. What what are your thoughts on on that idea? Oh, absolutely. We um, 
you know, just for example, obviously we're not all perfect and, and sometimes in our rush of a day, we forget to practice our own skills. And, mm-hmm. uh, case in point, I had one employee who I really needed him to get a project done that I needed him to do. And I needed it done at a certain time in it. And I just brought him in and said, Hey, you know, I need you to get X, Y, and Z done by this date. And he's like, Oh, sure. And he leaves. And this is one of my top employees, right? He, he does an excellent job in what he does. And the next day I know things weren't getting done. And I bring him in. I'm like, what's going on? And uh, he had every excuse under the sun. And this wasn't atypical behavior of him. And all of a sudden I caught myself realizing I hadn't invested mm. the time, right, to see, to talk to him and, and uh, ask some of the questions and use some of the motivational interviewing to kind of find out where he's at and his thoughts on it and guidance you know, guide him on it as well. And as soon as I backed up, took the proper steps, it's funny how things all of a sudden, he had some ideas that he wanted to throw in there and it got really creative and uh, really exciting. And then the next thing I know, I had up a better product than what I even mm. thought I was going to have in the end. Well, it seems like, you know, a, a great example of, of uh, taking that time, making that investment. Um, can, can, can you, Jason, or maybe somebody else talk about... Um, you know, I think there's one other element, it seems, of, you know, of human nature that comes out in the discussion of MI. There's the idea that ambivalence is normal, resistance is normal. Um, the, 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 can you talk about the phrase, the writing reflex? Um, I mean, it seems like, you know, as much as it's tempting to say, oh, you know, leaders, you shouldn't tell people what to do. You shouldn't give them answers. Um, can you talk about how there, there's, there's some human nature involved there where we should maybe you know, kind of be, be understanding about people who uh, are trying to write others. So I'll jump in. This is Brian. Um, the writing reflex, I mean, we develop this as leaders. We develop this as healthcare providers. It's the urge to want to jump in and help. It's the urge to want to jump in and fix, right? And as leaders, uh, and as healthcare providers, we have strong problem-solving skills. It's what it's what's got us here in the first place. Whether that's a leader uh, in an organization, or, for instance, again, a healthcare provider, you have to know how to solve problems, and you have to be able to jump in there and fix. And at times, this certainly has a time and a place when somebody is ready, when somebody is gung ho for change having uh, a leader tell them what to do and how to do it can be helpful. Um, the problem is when we're ambivalent, having somebody tell us what to do and how to do it, really it, it, gives, it gives voice to only one side of this internal dialogue that's going on in our minds. And so what we tend to do being an ambivalent person, when somebody's telling us what to do and how to do it, we argue back. As Beth said earlier, we say, yeah, but, because we're giving voice to the side of the argument in our heads that the leader is not giving voice to. So while we're not saying a leader should never uh, offer ideas around what to do and how to do it, um, it, it's best to resist that writing reflex initially, especially while the employee or team member is still ambivalent, and instead encourage that team member um, 
really to be the voice of champion, to not have it come from us as the leader, but to have it come from the uh, employee or the, the team member instead. So rather than pushing on one side of the ambivalence and eliciting the other, we're going to elicit the side for change uh, as the leader. And we're going to only offer that what to do and how to do it um, when the employee is ready for it, when he or she is asking for it in order to take steps towards change. Mm -hmm. and, and that's once that point, the stage of commitment has has been reached when it would be more, it would be less dysfunctional to plan together to give direction once there's agreement to move forward on solving a problem or moving forward on a path. Right. It becomes a collaboration. Right. It, it, exactly. So once there's that readiness for change, kind of a commitment to change from the team member, and again, they're wanting additional information, then as leaders, obviously, I mean, we, we've gotten to where we are for a reason, and part, part of that reason is we have knowledge, we have expertise, we have the ability to solve problems. So, of course, we can share that, but again, it's, it's when the team member is wanting it, when they're asking for it, when they're not generating it on their own, and when they're ready for change. So maybe if it's okay, let's come back to um, earlier, I think Beth used the phrase, um, you know, the dance of change when there might be misaligned agendas, um, different agendas within the organization. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about the process for um, helping work through that? How long, you know, do you, is, I imagine a lot of these times, it's not just a simple quick discussion um, that leads to some magic outcome, uh, that it's a process, it takes time. I don't, I don't know if you have a, another example that might help illustrate a situation like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was thinking perhaps I'll <clears throat> describe the process a little bit, and then I'm thinking about some of the examples that I know Jason may have and some of the work that he's done, and we might let him share there. But when we're, when we're as leaders, having a discussion with somebody about potential change, the, the first step is really not jumping into the, the house, which is what Brian was just alluding to, but really talking to the person and talking to the person in a way that, that shows our curiosity. And so oftentimes when I'm doing trainings, I will tell folks, put your, put your curious hat on. So asking questions, hearing the individual, what is their point of view, what are their thoughts, um, what are their values, what are their goals, and then how does, how does the agenda that you as a leader are bringing to the table potentially fit in with that? So by starting with a listening stance and then working with that individual to move into more of that problem-solving stance, we're much more likely to get to, to a shared agenda, a shared focus, that's collaborative and ends in the results that, that we both perhaps are looking for. Jason, I'm wondering if you have, have a couple of examples that you'd be willing to share, because I know I've heard you tell some good ones. Sure. There was uh, one leader I was working with who she struggled to figure out ways to communicate with her staff. Um, the problem was that she would often tell me she felt like she would try to talk with them, but she just felt so disconnected. And so we really came down to some of the core concept of finding that shared agenda, of meeting the people where they're at and, and uh, finding how do we go forward where we both meet, you know, going, how do I put it? Um, where we both feel good about the direction we're going in. 
And so her and I started talking and she gave me a situation where she was talking with the staff on trying to adopt uh, some changes down in the clinic that they were working in. And so she talked about how she went down there, saw what was happening, said, no, you guys need to be doing it, you know, this way, and that way, and started getting very directed with them. And she was telling me, I, I don't get it right. I mean, I tell them that, and it seems like this is the fifth time I've told them over and over. And so we kind of went over some different ideas and, okay, well, uh, have you thought about going down and, and just sitting with them and just saying, okay, what, what is it that might be beneficial if we go this direction? And, um, taking some time to hear from them and their voices. And we practice, you know, using some of the semi lead and she left, came back. And when she came back, she told me how great it went. She said, you know, it totally changed the the conversation. And she was really funny because she like literally couldn't sit in her chair. She was like talking, you know, behind her desk, just all excited. And she's like, Oh my gosh, it made such a difference. I just sat there and started using some of these things that I thought were so simple. Even when you were telling me this part was amusing to me, what she said, you know, it's, even when you were telling me these things, it was like, well, I don't get why that's going to work because it's just so simple, right? Just doing some of these little steps, little, little techniques is going to make such a difference. Um, and so she said, yeah, they, they had a really great response. She started hearing some of their concerns and some of the things that they really wanted to see in the clinic. And she was able to start kind of guiding them to seeing how that kind of fits in the same model where they're both going and wanting, wanting what they want to do with the patient. Um, and over time, as we kept discussing, she was able to come back and say that the change, you know, persisted and they even started coming up with more ideas, right? That creativeness often comes out when people are using MI lead with their employees and um, they got really excited and, you know, it became a very top-notch clinic. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, and thinking back to the story from earlier, there's a really compelling argument there that that taking that time, um, you know, lead, lead, that input leads to better solutions. And, and, and to me, that, that seems like, you know, the collaboration that we often see in a quote unquote lean culture, this idea that uh, leaders are, are, are getting input instead of being expected to have all the answers themselves. Um, but I, I still think this this collaboration, this discussion around the, the, the reasons why is, is, is still something that jumps out to me. And, you know, I just, I mean, this is one reason, you know, MI has resonated with me. I, I, I'm reminded of a, a quick story. I was working with a hospital in their laboratory and, and they had great leadership um, in, in the lab and we were going into microbiology and the lab director and the chief pathologist certainly had their ideas of reasons why uh, lean was going to be important. And um, I forget the genesis of it, but we decided and they said, okay, you know, Mark, you're an outsider. And we agreed. I would just go in and have a very open-ended discussion. And, and I knew some of these folks because I wasn't brand new to the organization, but asking, you know, what, why should we improve things in microbiology? And they talked about clinical quality and they talked about um, their workload. And I think, um, you know, the, the director was afraid to bring up the, uh, the issue of overtime. You know, we, we need to reduce overtime. Well, sure enough, that was one of the things the employees brought up because they wanted to get home on time. And the director was afraid it would be viewed as as cutting their paycheck. And, you know, they, they discovered in that case um, there, there was great alignment. And I wonder how it would have worked out if he had I wonder if he had. Well, I guess we would predict the answer, but um, I'll wrap up the story. I'm curious your thoughts. If he had pushed on them the idea we need to reduce overtime, they would have likely pushed back. Well, we all like to feel 
like we have some degree of autonomy. That is a that is human nature. And and mm-hmm. if uh, if I ever forget that, when I come home at the end of the day, I have two teenagers, and and they <laughs> never fail to okay. remind me how important it is just that sense of having choices. So if I if my daughter comes in and I tell her when she comes in, you need to unload your backpack, you need to pick up your room, and you need to set the table. I'm going to get an argument. But if I if I ask her what her thoughts are about what's going to help the the night move along so that we can get get to this delicious dinner that we smell cooking, mm-hmm. she's probably going to come up with some of those ideas on her own. It, mm-hmm. It's it's really about the way we approach it and whether or not we're supporting that that need that all of us have to feel like we have some input. And we push back right. when, we, when we don't. And they, you know, those employees may or may not have necessarily pushed back, but what you might have seen is you might have seen some of the employees walk away from it going, man, he's taking away our ability to have overtime. Oh, you know, and, and feel a little bit grumpy about it and the others feeling happy that he did do it, you know, taking away this overtime. But you can end up mm-hmm. with that because they might move to the other side of that spectrum with that ambivalence. Yeah. Kind of like Especially if they're sitting that. on the fence in in the beginning. The people who are already convinced one way or another are less of, of a concern. They are there. But the folks that are on the fence and have reasons to go both ways, it's it's not too difficult to to tip it by pushing too hard, and then they're going to write that canoe, if you will, by going the other direction. Can I just highlight one thing you said, Mark, that I really liked about how the leaders uh, we don't always have to, or you know, we don't always have to have the answers. And it's interesting, you know, when I first ever started teaching motivational interviewing, just more in the clinical world. Um, I used to love showing clinical staff how motivational interviewing allows us not to always have to have the answers. And it's nice to allow that uh, organic answer to come out of the person. And, and it's the same with leaders. It's, it's really empowering and uh, it makes you feel like, you know, this great collaborative leader and, and make things happen when it's this organic, natural thing that comes out of the employee that you're helping guide out of them um, mm-hmm. and, and not having to always have these answers and not always having to try to get people to follow your directions and your answers that you bring to the table. And stuff. So, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I think I, I like one thing I really like um, is, you know, this concept of the spirit of MI. And, and I think there's parallels to, you know, the lean methodology where, you know, we all have stories. I'm sure every listener has one uh, of somebody using a tool in a way that violated some spirit of lean. And, you know, it, it, it's it's probably fair to say that motivational interviewing is there a certain ethics around, you know, these tools, these methods shouldn't be misapplied. This is not about a leader having a new way of manipulating people into doing what they want to do. Uh, are there any you know, kind of cautions or is it, is it sort of impossible to misuse this because people will detect that and check out? And I, I don't believe it's an impossible to avoid misusing it. Um, we, you know, we, we take pains to talk about the ethical application of motivational interviewing in our book because of the mm-hmm. potential for misuse. Um, motivational interviewing works. And, you know, it works to help people make change. And 
it can be, and, and it's powerful, right? So there, there's all sorts of potential uh, for misuse. And the uh, developers of motivational interviewing, which are Bill Miller and, and Steve Rolnick, and certainly others have contributed over the years, in the third edition of their book, um, of the, the sort of core motivational interviewing book, they explicitly added the component of compassion uh, to the spirit of MI. And the idea being that the way they define compassion is what we're doing is in the best interest of the person we're working with. So what we're doing as a clinician is in the best interest of the patient. What we're doing as a leader is in the best interest uh, of the people that we are leading. And they included this explicitly because they had actually already seen, and, and partly in the business world, where people were learning MI really to manipulate the other uh, people that they were working with. For instance, people in sales were using it to improve their sales. And they weren't necessarily doing this in the best interest of the people they were selling the product to, <laughs> so much as in the best interest of themselves as the as the salespeople. And so I think you really have to be cautious as a leader because it's tempting, especially when you have leaders above you, it's tempting to get your team, your staff, uh, to achieve the goal by any means necessary. And so motivational interviewing is meant to be pro-social. It is meant to be helpful to the people that you're using motivational interviewing with. And so we spend a lot of time discussing the spirit for just that reason, because there is the temptation there, right, for the leader to, to use this powerful technique to force his or her uh, staff members um, to make a change. And, and we really want it to be about helping people who have come to the conclusion themselves that it's in their own best interest to make a change. Yeah, I think that's where the workplace dynamic comes up again, where a lot of leaders might say, well, sure, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, the ideal is to be a servant leader. And, and, and some people might say, yeah, you know, you take care of the employees and they'll take care of the patients. But imagine there's times where people say, look, you know, the, the organization expects me to achieve certain goals and, you know, but it seems it comes back to that view of uh, a leader viewing sometimes uh, employees as a means to their end instead of engaging them as leaders. Like one of you said earlier, right? the role that leaders have in their employees' motivation. Um, I don't know if that was a question or a statement I just rambled through, but would anyone have a, a reaction, a better thought to build upon my rambling? You know, we, we could misuse... Um, some of the aspects of motivational interviewing to try to achieve a change that benefits us as leaders. Um, I, I, I would hope that, that folks would not, but certainly folks could. The, the potential downside, I think, is that while on the front end you may get whatever it is that you are after, at what cost is that in a long-term relationship with that employee or supervisee? And, and Motivational interviewing at its core is about um, 
the relationship that you have with that individual and, and, and the investment that you're putting into that individual. And certainly if there were, were positions where we are leading folks um, for whom we have no vested interest in and could replace without any loss, um, we might not choose to use motivational interviewing uh, because the relationship and, and that engagement mm. is such a, a core piece of what it is that we are doing. And so by definition, we are kind of pulling in some of that servant leadership. Um, you think about most of us have had a leader at some point or a supervisor or a boss at some point in, in our careers that has been that transformational leader, the one that's really inspired us to go above and beyond the basic expectations of, of our job. When we think about the folks that, that really embody what a transformational leader is, they, they genuinely care about, about our, our well-being as well as their own. And from that, it, it is a long-term investment that pays off and, and the dividends are ongoing. So we, we could misuse it. Um, it would probably be short-lived. I was going to say, I'd just add that, you know, it's it's always fun to sit down with some of the leaders that I've worked with over, over you know, the years. And when they want to throw situations out at me, right, and we'll kind of process them and talk about how this applies and how could we use it. Uh, because, you know, if you're used to some of the other models of leadership, it might be, you might kind of sit back and go back, why, how how could this really work? And so it's always fun to sit down, talk about the situations. How could you apply it? But then also at times they'll bring up situations that motivational interviewing is definitely not appropriate, right? And so my point being is some of the techniques aren't appropriate for every situation with an employee. And that's just something that leaders need to identify. When is it appropriate? When is it not appropriate? Um, we can always carry the spirit of motivational interviewing with us in all situations, but at the same time, all the techniques aren't appropriate for every situation. Yeah. Well, and as, as we you know start, and I think that's that. Thank you for clarifying that. That yeah, um, there might be a, a time to be directive and and don't miss don't misuse MI and, and recognize you're not practicing those at at, at the time. Um, but I think, you know, I imagine a lot of listeners having the same thought that, you know, what, what I take away from MI and, and, and I see where this would be really compatible with uh, a, a lean or Toyota type culture are elements of not just uh, respect for people at a really, you know, deep and meaningful level, uh, but um, taking the long term perspective, as, as you pointed out, Beth, you know, point one. Point number one of the Toyota Way management philosophy says make decisions, uh, you know, for what I'm paraphrasing, what's best for the long term, even at the expense of the short term. And, and that's something that uh, a lot of organizations don't try to emulate. But what I hear out of this is, um, you know, the, the longer term perspective um, combined with servant leadership, respect for people, engaging people um, is um a great approach. So, kind of final final question here. Um, you know, other than your book, which you know, I of course do highly recommend to listeners, motivational interviewing for leadership. You can find it on on Amazon. You can get it as a Kindle book as well. Do do any of you have thoughts of you know what what would you recommend someone they've read the book how how and when would it be appropriate for somebody to try to practice some of these methods or at least you know to to get started. 
I would say, is when you're reading it. You know, as you read it, uh, in fact, in the book, we give lots of exercises, and we would encourage you to start giving the, uh, the different techniques a try. Um, it's one of those things that once you go out and start trying them, you'll start noticing the power of them. And you, you don't need to be formally certified to try to use some of these uh, approaches, right? One of the one of the the things that we teach people almost immediately when we're teaching motivational interviewing are four core skills that are 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 client centered, um, and those are open ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries. And oftentimes people will begin by just practicing open-ended questions. They'll practice reflecting what they hear other folks um, saying to them. And, and that's something that we can do in just about any situation. Pretty much anyone loves to be listened to, even if, if we're practicing our listening skills. And so there are opportunities in all different formats to begin to utilize some of those skills and see, see what happens. And certified, yeah, no, and, and, they don't. They don't need to be certified. Um, but obviously, as people start trying some of these skills, they'll find that they're more complex than what they seem like on the surface, and that's where training might be needed, right? And so, where they can go to a training and get much more, uh, you know, in-depth skill build, uh, building inside of that training. Uh, I'll just piggyback real quick on both what Beth and. Uh, Jason are saying, as you start to try out some of these skills, your employees, your staff members, your team members will give you immediate feedback on whether or not you're using the skills. If your team members are more engaged, if they're talking more, if they're talking more about change, if they're generating ideas and solutions and, and reasons for making the change, if they're getting energized, then you're moving in the right direction. Um, and so I think that's one of the neat things about just getting started with some of the skills. And then to Jason's point around additional training, um, one of the things, and you may have been about to ask about this, but we are as uh, available, three of us are available for trainings, for coaching, so if anybody's wanting additional assistance learning these skills, that's available from us, um, and uh, it's available from others as well. Okay. Well, I, I will. <laughs> I am interested in that, so I will follow up offline. But that's that's good to know <laughs> that um, that that you're able to help. And you know, just one other thought I'll, I'll add before kind of ask each of you for a final thought. You know, as I've gone through and and read the books and. You know, I took a took a workshop and um, you know just a day long class. I've I've found even individually, I've I think have a better understanding of my own ambivalence in certain circumstances. And you know, I you know if I if I notice change talk and um, I, I you know my own inner monologue, uh, you know, I try to think how to steer myself toward um, you know the positive change talk that is more indicative of change. Um, Think might maybe you know, I, I don't know if anyone else finds uh, a personal starting point um, as as a way of thinking through some of these concepts before uh, working with others. So um, so maybe ask each of you to give a final thought, whether it's on on a reaction to that or, or anything else you'd like to leave 
the listeners with? Uh, maybe start uh, with Beth. Sure. Um, kind of along the lines of what you were you were just saying about listening for change talk, I really use that as a gauge at any given time um, that I want to know how is this conversation going with this individual? Uh, am I making progress or am I making things not as good as they could have been? And, and I know by whether or not I'm getting change talk. So if I'm getting change talk, what I'm doing is, is headed in the right direction. If I'm getting the opposite, if I'm getting arguments against what we call sustained talk, I know I need to adjust my sails a bit and perhaps shift direction. And it's just a very gentle guide for me so that I know how it's going at any given point. Even if that person isn't completely ready to make a change in that moment, I can see what direction we're headed and whether we're making progress. Uh, great. Jason, do you have uh, kind of a, a final thought for the listeners? Yeah. You know, I, I keep having a thought going through my mind as we've been going through this call, and I'll just kind of give it here as my own personal why, why I chose motivational interviewing for leadership. And it goes back to, you know, I, I've been working with training leaders and coaching leaders for a number of years now, but I've also been training and, and coaching people in motivational interviewing. And it was probably a good four years ago, I was sitting down with an executive one day, coaching them on leadership skills. And uh, she always looks at me and goes, you admired me again, didn't you? And I don't know why it never... <laughs> connected so well for me before that moment, but it really connected at that moment of, oh my gosh, yeah, that's, that's the reality. You know, I, I coached and trained people in a lot of different leadership models. Um, but I really like what motivation and bring, brings to the table. And, and I started coaching and, and training and working with people more on motivational interviewing in a leadership style and a model. And that's kind of where it all started to grow and develop and just seeing it in my own personal experience. That's great. And, and Brian, would you like to add a, a final, final thought? Yes, uh, I'm, I'm quite happy to. Um, you know, we hear terms like transformational leader, uh, servant leader, lean manager. And I think for us, what MI has given us is a way to really put these sort of different leadership methods and approaches um, into practice. And, and I think that's what really sort of, at least for me, and I think I speak for Jason and Beth, really appeals uh, uh, about, uh, appeals to us uh, uh, about motivational interviewing. Um, I remember being brought into this uh, lean project, uh, working with a clinic to help them improve access so that patients could get in quicker to see the clinicians there. And the team already had a good um, green belt uh, leader working with them, but it wasn't until we took, and I signed up to, this was a yellow belt project for me, um, and the green belt was there to be my mentor. And it was really once we started asking the team for their ideas, um, they had sort of stagnated before, uh, the, the team and the Greenbelt leader had sort of stagnated in going forward until we really took a step back and I worked with the team and asked them why they would want to improve access. How did this fit into what their goals and values were? And the team had been doing nothing 
in terms of coming up with uh, um, PDSA cycles, for instance, and, and projects that they could work on. But once they were identify, once they were able to tell us how improving access would actually help them meet the mission of taking care of their patients and help them be more effective and more efficient, once they articulated their reasons, they all of a sudden started to come up with multiple projects that they then started working on. So I just found it was a nice way, and in a way I hadn't thought of until working on that project, of really putting lean management into practice. So I think anybody, any of your listeners who are interested in learning how to be good, effective lean managers, I, I think this is one strategy uh, one practical strategy, one practical approach that they could learn to actually do that. Well, that's great. I, I, I hope um, this will inspire people to, to, to do so. You know, I've, I've been uh, you know, talking with colleagues of mine around the country um, this, you know, this year about motivational interviewing, and I know it's gotten prompted some others to go and, and read the book and, and get similarly excited um, about these ideas like I have, and, and hopefully this podcast will um, will prompt some other listeners to do that. So I'd love to hear what people think. If you want to come and comment on the blog page, uh, the post for this episode, um, it, I know people can find the book on Amazon. Final question, you know, how can people reach out to you if they are interested in some training or coaching? I would probably have them just go to our website that we're upda- currently updating. And on that website will be contact information for Beth, Brian, and myself, Jason. And, and what is that website? Uh, miforleaders.com. Okay, great. Uh, we'll link that. Yep. Uh, link to that on uh, the page as well. So, um, again, our, our guests today have been um, Jason Wilcox, Brian Kirsch, Beth Jenkins. Um, it's been great talking to you. Thank you um, so much for sharing um, with us on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.